Alright, so we've been working our way through Luke. We're about to start Luke 8, um, which I was thinking about, that's a little bit scary considering we started Luke before Christmas. But uh, anyway, and as we get into Luke 8, I do want to remind us of um, what Luke had in mind, that he had a mission in mind when he wrote this gospel. And, and he summarized that in, in Luke 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke isn't just giving us sort of a rambling biographical sketch of Jesus. The the stories that he's telling us and the facts that he chooses to include, he is selected to deliver a specific message. And that is so that we can be confident of the things that we've been taught, of the things that we've learned about Jesus. So that we can be confident that Jesus is truly God incarnate. That we can have an accurate picture of God through Jesus. Um, the picture that Jesus painted of him. And so that we can be confident of the gospel. And with that being said, Luke 8 starts with what at the beginning seems to be a pretty disjointed little factual tidbit that's kind of thrown in at random. He says, soon after he went, soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the gospel of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chaza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, you've got to appreciate that this is a little bit of a political hot potato for me to mess with this, because in fact, Joanna is named after Joanna, the wife of Chuzza. So I need to be a little bit careful in dismissing the importance of this woman. But really, at, at first glance, this doesn't seem to be a really significant group of verses. Um, in the original writing, there would have been no um, chapter breaks, no verse breaks. There's one continuous book. And right here, dab smack in the middle between Jesus being anointed by the sinful woman and him telling the parable about um, the sower to a large crowd, Luke seems to pause for station identification. I mean, it kind of sounds like, and now a word from our sponsors. This portion of the Gospel of Luke is brought to you by Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Jesus, Susanna, and others. Now back to the show. Um, Doesn't it feel a bit like that? I mean, like, so what? Um, But Luke has already told us that he's not giving commercials. He's not taking time out for that. This book is to confirm aspects of our faith. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what was he trying to tell us in this little passage? And to our American eyes, what's written here doesn't seem all that shocking. Um, but in the first century Jewish context, it was quite unusual that women would be mentioned at all, and pretty much unimaginable that they would be the financial bulwark behind Jesus' ministry. Um, in fact, to my mind, I, I can't think of another place where Jesus mentions anybody supporting him. Um, you know, you think... In, in, in a male-dominated culture where there's debate over women, whether women even had souls, Luke's emphasis on this important role of women in Jesus' ministry really highlights his love for them 
and their importance to him. Women are not second-class citizens in God's kingdom, despite some people saying that, yeah, Christianity is is a masculine religion and we really oppress women. That's really not the case in God's heart. In fact, if we kind of ignore these artificial chapter breaks that have been introduced, really this whole section of Luke is a collection of stories about women. Um, Jesus raises the son of the widow from Nain in Luke 7, and the entire focus of that account is on the widow. He says very little about the son. You would think there'd be all kinds about, you know, this this guy raising from the dead, but Jesus doesn't even really interact with him. Um, But he describes this woman who was in desperate straits because her only son died. And in in those days, women were basically the social security, or or, sorry, children were the social security of their parents. With no husband, with no child, um, this widow was really in desperate straits. She had no one to provide for her, no one to protect her, no one even particularly concerned about her because after all she was just a woman you know who who cared if she survived or didn't um, in that male-dominated culture but god was concerned about her god was protecting her god was providing her jesus saw her and responded to her need with compassion and with really practical help he he returned her son to her god's concerned about widows and about women in need. James tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to help to keep oneself unstained from the world. Also in this section of Luke, we have the account of the anointing of Jesus by the sinful woman, who was expressing her love and gratitude to the Savior while the male Pharisees and probably a lot of male guests just looked on and scoffed. Jesus defended her. He commends her response as being entirely appropriate for one who's been forgiven. And, and I suspect, you know, we, we kind of think this woman was probably you know, a prostitute. And I suspect such women, even in those days, were, were trafficked by men uh, who were cruel and unscrupulous like they are today. And I wonder if part of Jesus' impact on her life was in fact to set her free from that bondage and oppression. And that account leads directly into this Luke 8 about the women who'd been healed and delivered by Jesus who were supporting his ministry. And again, I think it's interesting, you think of all the men that Jesus touched, all the blind men and lepers and whatever that we hear about Jesus ministering to, you never hear of any one of them coming back and giving back to Jesus, only the women who are described as coming back to Jesus in his lifetime. So here in Luke 7 and 8, like elsewhere in Scripture, we get this clear picture that even in the first century Israel, in a male-dominated culture, God isn't partial to men. He loves women. Jesus cared for women. He welcomed women as his ministry partners. God is the God of men and women. Jesus is the Savior of men and women. Those who would picture God as oppressive of women just really don't understand the heart of God. So now at this point, I actually want to take a commercial break of my own. Um, World News Group is a biblically-based news source that, that we really appreciate. They have a variety of different offerings of news magazines and a daily podcast and a news video aimed at teens 
And they do current events, but they also kind of do a historical piece every week. And this week, the historical focus was on Martin and Gracia Burnham, um, who I remember this, this story well. This is the 20th anniversary of their release. They were missionaries in the Philippines who were kidnapped by a terrorist group. And I wanted to play a clip for you because I think it fits really well with the next section in Luke 8. So my AV folks would fire that up. 20 years ago this week, an American missionary couple's year-long captivity comes to a dramatic conclusion. Here is Paul Butler. For 17 years, missionaries Martin and Gracia Burnham lived and worked in the Philippines with New Tribes Mission. Martin was a jungle pilot, and Gracia supported the work in many ways, while also homeschooling their children. On May 27, 2001, the Burnhams were celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary at a resort. When the Abu Sayyaf, a Muslim terrorist group linked to Al-Qaeda, kidnapped the couple and 18 other guests. Within six months, all but the Burnhams and one additional captive remained in custody. Some had been released, others killed. The Abu Sayyaf took refuge in the jungle, forcing the Burnhams to live in primitive conditions while evading the Philippine military. On the afternoon of June 7, 2002, the military succeeded in pinning the group down. Martin Burnham was killed during a rescue attempt by the Philippine Army, but his wife, Gracia, survived. Family members say that during Martin's final hours, both he and Gracia had a sense that they might not make it out alive. Over the two decades since that rescue, Gracia has visited hundreds of churches sharing her story. Earlier this year, she spoke at the CrossCon Youth Conference, and here's a short excerpt of her presentation. Well, you know how our story went, and you know how Martin died in the gun battle that rescued me, but my kids and I have been asking people like you all over the world to pray for the guys who held us captive. And why are we surprised when God does something awesome and answers our prayer? I don't know, oh me of little faith. Uh, God has given me a rest of the story. Several years ago, an American couple that works in prison ministry in the Philippines contacted me. They had gotten a hold of a comic book series that our foundation printed. These were printed in Taosug, the language that many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke. They're beautiful, colorful. I have no idea what they say they're in Taosug, but they gave them out in the prison and the guys loved them. But they said the interesting thing that's happening here is these guys found out Gracia Burnham printed these. They're coming to us saying, we're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, well, ask them their names. Maybe I know them. And here came the names. Sure enough, guys, we walked with, lived with, starved with for a year, 23 or so of them in prison for the rest of their lives. This American couple and I have gotten together to figure out ways to show the love of Christ to these guys. And I could spend an hour telling you that story, but awesome things are happening. These guys are reading the scriptures in their own dialects. Some of them are going to Bible studies to make a long, awesome story very short. So far, five former Abu Sayyaf that I know of have come to know the Lord as their savior. Um, <laughs> uh, some of them are in the prison, some are not. 
One is a very violent man with over 20 counts of murder against him, a new person in Christ, a brother in the Lord. And we just keep praying. And I wonder if you'd want to start praying too. When you think about me and my story, pray for these guys in the prison. God can do anything, can't he? And it's not over till it's over. And I think that God has let me be a small part of what's happening there in the prison just to encourage my heart because he loves doing good things for his children. Had I known while we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations, not to crush us, but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work. And God's work is good. It's always good. And I've been encouraged that there can't be a harvest without seed planters. And maybe planting seeds isn't always fun. Maybe planting seeds for you is downright uncomfortable and you don't see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds because you're not even good at it. But all of a sudden you see what God's doing. And I've been encouraged that the seed we planted long ago in the jungle was not wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. So keep planting those seeds, my friend. Those seeds of the gospel that Christ died for our sins. The ones that God said will never be wasted. Keep on when you feel like giving up. When you don't see any fruit. When, when you wonder if you even really know what you're doing. Keep on. It's God that's going to do the work on down the road. And I thank you for having me. God bless you guys. That's this history book. I just find that testimony incredibly powerful. And as we talk about the parable of the sower, um, just keep in mind that testimony. Um, I think it'll help us to more accurately kind of understand the parable. Um, so we're talking about the parable of the sower, which... That's what my Bible calls it. Really, it's not about the sower at all. It's much more the parable of the soils. And it goes like this. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. So at face value, that story is nothing particularly surprising or insightful. The people that Jesus was sharing it with, most of them would be farmers or certainly new farmers. And, you know, it, it's just 
kind of an obvious thing in that culture. You threw your seed out. If it landed in good places, it grew a good crop. If it landed on the path and you, you hoped it didn't, but if it did, it wasn't going to yield anything. Or maybe it landed on the rocks and didn't do much. There's nothing shocking there. But the parable is an allegory. The various pieces of the story refer to things that Jesus later described in more detail in his explanation to his disciples. And he starts out that explanation Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And notice that even though this passage in my Bible, and I think every Bible I've looked at, refers to it as the parable of the sower, Jesus skips over the sower. He doesn't say anything specific about the sower. He jumps right to the seed. And and I believe because that that's because there's many different sowers and many different kinds of sowers. And They play an important role in getting the seed out, but it's really not pivotal to the message that Jesus is trying to convey. And I'll elaborate that more in in a minute. But first, let's look at what Jesus does identify as the seed. Jesus said the seed is the word of God. And, you know, if you're like me, you immediately kind of glaze over, okay, that's the Bible, we know what that is. And and I think that is, the, the Bible is a very, very important part of the seed and certainly the best source of seed. But in the context of this parable, I think Jesus is talking about the word of God even more broadly than we might think at first. Back in in Genesis, when God created the world, he spoke it into existence. And John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word. And the the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus is the word. And there's a sense in which all of creation is the manifestation of the word of God. It's it's the product of God's word, of his spoken word, of the incarnate word of Jesus. David, who spent a lot of time out in creation as a boy watching sheep, said in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So creation has no speech, no words, yet it proclaims the glory of God. Paul said in Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So in addition to the written word, in addition to scripture, creation is a manifestation of the word of God. And in a sense, it's one of the sowers of the seed, and it's perhaps the most ubiquitous sower of the seed, the most universal sower, because it speaks to all people everywhere, even those who have no access to the written scripture. Even to them, creation declares the power and character of God. That's what Paul says. Jesus himself is probably the sower of the seed. I mean, since he was God, everything he said was the word of God, and his life was the living word of God for us to see, as John described it. And all of us, as his followers, are also sowers of seed through sharing of scripture, but also through the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
and the values of the adopted kingdom, the kingdom of God that, that hopefully we're living out in, in our lives and through our words. I believe that's a large part of the seed that, that Martin and Gracia Burnham shared with Abba Saif. Um, I suspect they shared scripture with them, but God also used their lives. Um, the way that God chose to use them to sow his seeds was not their preferred way to be used. It was extremely difficult. I've, I've read their biography, and the stuff they endured was incredible. And some of their fellow captives were beheaded. They were starved. It was, it was just awful. <coughs> Gracia suggests that she wasn't always a happy sower and that she didn't feel particularly successful at sowing at the time. She didn't see any of the seedlings sprouting from her work. But the seed of God was sown even by a reluctant and less than perfect sower. So the sower is not critical. The seed, the word of God, and the soil, those are the critical aspects. So with, in contrast to kind of modern farming where you've got GPS-directed placement of the seeds and a perfect spacing, um, Jesus paints this picture of sort of indiscriminate seed sowing, which I think speaks of God's abundant liberality. He desires that all are saved and that all live as his children. He pours out his mercy abundantly. He proclaims his truth to all who will listen. The seed of his word is really spread in all directions in many different ways so that no one will ever be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know, it's not my fault. And unlike earthly seed, which sometimes is good and sometimes isn't, sometimes it doesn't germinate, God's seed is always good. It's always fertile. It will always germinate if it's given the chance. If it isn't fruitful, the problem isn't with the seed. The problem is with the soil. And the soil is where Jesus really focuses his attention. Excuse me. And his explanation. So here, here is his explanation to the, the disciples. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So Jesus explains the different soil types really pretty clearly, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time picking them apart because he really explains what they are. I suspect, you know, we hear these things and all of us can think of, oh yeah, I know so-and-so, yeah, he's, he's pretty hard soil, or I know somebody else and they're being choked by weeds. But Jesus didn't tell us this parable to equip us to be able to judge other people. He, his point is really for us to examine our own hearts. What's the soil in our hearts? So the last symbol in the allegory is the fruit. What is the fruit that the soil bears? 
Gracia Burnham referred to fruit as, as the saved lives of her captives. And that's certainly what we tend to think of, of fruit as, as people coming to Christ. And that's certainly a very, very important part of fruit. But the Bible, when it refers to fruit, often is referring to godly character, like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And honestly, when I hear Gracia tell her story, I hear a lot of godly fruit in her life that came through their captivity. Again, I've read the account, um, her autobiography, um, and what they endured was horrible. There would have been plenty of reason for her to be like Job's wife and just curse God and die. She could have emerged from this a bitter woman, she could have been angry towards God. She should, could have been seeking revenge for the men who held them captive. But instead, as you hear her voice, I mean, her, her life bears the fruit of love for those who treated her so badly. The fruit of peace for what happened to them, even though I'm sure she has unanswered questions at this point, of faithful gratitude to God and dependence on him and of patiently and expectingly waiting to see his work, to see him bring it to completion. The soil of her life is producing an abundant crop of fruit. So what kind of soil do you want to be? What kind of soil would the Lord be pleased for us to be? I think the answer to that question is pretty clear. This seed is, is planted to get fruit. And only seed on good soil bears fruit. Speaking to the religious people of the day, Jesus said, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these rocks, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And speaking to his disciples, Jesus said of his father, of God, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, whatever you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my, to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So unfruitful branches are cut off unfruitful trees are cut down and burned that doesn't sound like where I want to be Um, that doesn't sound good to me on the other hand fruitful branches branches that remain connected to the vine those in whom the word remains that it's not snatched away by birds or crowded out by weeds those branches flourish They, they glorify God they demonstrate that they are truly Jesus' disciples so I want to be good fruit that's or good soil that's fruitful. I want to be a a branch that abides in the vine. So can we influence the kind of fruit we are? Are people just, yeah, it's the kind of fruit you are, tough luck. You're uh, hard, rocky soil. Um, Are we doomed to be weedy? I I don't think so. I mean, I I think of the Apostle Paul or a guy like John John Newton, where their soil early in life seemed to be really the hard beaten path. Um, you know, Paul was out to kill Christians. John Newton was a slave trader, totally into debauchery and, and evilness, even mocking Christians. 
But God in his mercy provided, I don't know whether it was a chisel plow or dynamite, but he broke up the soil enough to allow the seed to germinate and ultimately produce an abundant crop in their lives. In God's hands, the rock-hard soil was transformed into good bottom land, if you will. We can ask him to break up the hard ground in our lives as well. I can also think of numerous examples of people who kind of were excited about the Lord, started off well, and then things got rough and they drifted away and, and really walked badly away from the Lord, and yet years later returned to a fruitful relationship with him. And honestly, many of us, including myself, struggle with the weeds. And you, know, you have a garden, weeds are ubiquitous. Weeds in our lives are always there, and we constantly have to get after them. Um, or they'll crowd out the Lord in our lives and cause our relationships to grow cold and unfruitful. But God faithfully calls us back, and God keeps reminding us, hey, you know, you've, you've left your first love. You, you, I'm getting crowded out. Come back to me. Um, he restores us to, to a place of fruitfulness. In fact, I, I think our hearts are rarely a single soil type. Um, to, to change metaphors here from soil to rocks, if you will, I, I think my heart is kind of like granite, which sounds pretty hard, but it's a collection of different minerals all kind of pushed together. And there's some areas that are light, like good soil, that are receptive to God's word. And there's other areas that honestly are dark, that are, are the hard path. Um, and I'm not even sure, in fact, I am sure, I'm not aware of all of those. There's parts of me that God knows I'm not ready to hear what his godly perspective is on. I'm not ready to receive what godly living would look like in that area. And so, you know, there, there are those, those hard areas that God hasn't broken up yet. Um, there's places in my heart that honestly are probably gray. They receive God's word, but I struggle to keep a focus on his truth because worldly stuff or old ways of doing things crowd in. And those are places where God is actively working to develop his character, but the process isn't finished. So my life is, is a composite of those things. The soil of my heart is a composite of those things. And I think that's true of all of us. I think of, of Peter. Um, remember when Jesus was asking his disciples, did they want to leave like the rest of the crowd? Peter answered, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Totally sold out. God, I, Jesus, I have nowhere else to go. You've got all the truth. I'm yours. And yet, shortly after, um, in the high priest's courtyard, Peter also denied even knowing Jesus. The fear of man, um, the fear for his own life had choked out that willingness to stand up for Jesus. And I think both statements reflect Peter's heart. I, I think part of it was totally devoted to the Lord, but there was part of it in which you know, he still loved his own life. But over time, God worked on those other parts, and Peter ultimately laid down his life willingly as a martyr for Christ. So I don't think God is, is worried that maybe there's, there's hard spots and soft spots in our lives. He's working at them to transform them. Jesus describes the good soil as those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. A heart of good soil hears the word. 
And I think that means we put ourselves in a position to receive the seed of God's word, which is scattered broadly in a variety of ways, but by far the most reliable and the best source of God's word is the Bible. No question about that. And reading or listening to scripture should be part of our daily routine. Um, Our hearts should also be soft towards him speaking to us in other ways, whether it be through creation, whether it be through godly teachers, whether it be through friends or music or books. There's many different ways that he can get our attention and call us to greater fruitfulness and to more accurately reflect his character. Once we hear the word, Jesus says this good soil, the fruitful soil, holds fast to it with an honest and good heart. God's word bears fruit when we don't just let it go in one ear and out the other, but when we meditate on it or mull over it or wrestle with it and do so honestly to let it shine its light into the darkness of my heart to reveal the honest truth. Not not the polished image that I want to show you here on Sunday morning, but the real me. Um, let him see the real me. Let God work out his goodness and work his goodness into my heart, exposing my badness, purging out my sin, changing my desires and making me more like him. The fruit comes with patience. It comes slowly. It comes as he does his transforming work. God is patient. He knows that we're dust. He knows that we're a work in progress. And he's not rushing it. He's, he's taking his time to do it right. And I find hope that it's him that brings the fruit and not me. My job is to give him access to my heart. And as he puts his finger on the hard-packed areas to allow him to break it up, when he identifies weeds and rocks to allow him to pull those out, But he's patient, and I need to be patient, because some of that work just takes a while. But he's faithful. Like the Burnhams, if if we yield ourselves to him, even in our brokenness and imperfection and bad attitudes, and you name it, he'll be at work to bring fruit in us and in others in spite of us. So, you know, the parable of the sower, the parable of the soil... It's kind of a Sunday school favorite. It's easy to do illustrations and nice pictures and whatever. And we can think of it as, oh, this is kind of a kid's story. But don't trivialize it. Jesus concludes the parable with a rather strong and even ominous exhortation. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That phrase appears 15 times in the New English uh, version of the Bible um, or the English Standard Version. Eight of those are in Revelation where he's speaking to the churches, the seven churches. There's, there's eight mentions there. The others are mostly associated with parables like the salt that lost its saltiness and was thrown away or the weeds that grew up among the desirable plants that were plucked out and burned. In other words, it's usually used in really serious circumstances where it really deserves our attention. Jesus doesn't say he who has ears. Everybody has ears. Everybody could hear it, except I guess the deaf people. But Jesus says he who has ears to hear, implying that some, perhaps many, 
don't have ears that can actually hear the message. And even those who can hear it apparently have a choice of whether they'll actually hear it or not. Jesus is urging us to pay attention and diligently watch over our hearts to see the state of our soil. So if you've never embraced God's gift of salvation, that's a critical need. That's, that's eternal significance. Is the soil in your life packed hard? Would you let the Lord break it up and respond to his gospel? But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus for forgiveness and are pursuing life as a child of God, Jesus' words are, he asks, are we hearing the word and holding it fast in an honest and good heart and bearing fruit with patience? Are we regularly receiving the seed of God's word in its various forms, including regular reading and listening to scripture? Are there hard places in our lives that we're resisting God, where we need to yield to his efforts to break them up? Are there things in our lives that are choking us spiritually that we need to turn over to God and allow him to remove them or to put them in their right place and right perspective? Are we more concerned about earth stuff than eternal stuff? Do we have time to sit at the feet of Jesus and know him and be known by him? And that's not a once and done deal. It's really a daily struggle, just like your garden to keep... If you saw my garden, you would laugh. Um, But to keep those weeds out, daily pulling them out, allowing the rocks to be removed, the soil to be softened and broken up. But it's important. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word that you share so abundantly for those the seed of your word that you spread abroad Um, god we won't have soft hearts we want to have ears that can hear um, that do hear lord we want to um, just do the work of yielding up our heart and our lives to you and asking you to do the work you want to do like the like the burnhams to not allow hard uh, circumstances to make our heart hard but to make it soft and to seek you in the midst of those god would you do your work uh, to bring forth fruit in our lives we pray in jesus name amen